welcome to an Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I am your host, Bernadette Pager, and I have got an awesome lady rocking it in the house with me. You know what? I'm going to bring my guest on even as I do introductions. I want to do this with her. Hi, Judy. Hi, Bernadette. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm going to kind of do a formal introduction here in a second here. But, you know, we, we're both rocking the hats today. Judy's got right. her hat. She's got a hat today for, for radio listeners. It says Faith Over Fear. I love that. She's got an American flag in the background. And Memorial Day, I added an American flag to my background a little bit there. So, you know, we're just, uh, I, I, you know, Judy... People don't even know what the heck I'm talking about yet, but um, this is how I roll. I feel like, you know, we were born into a time, I don't know if, if it was our, if in any other time, you and I would have ended up sort of doing the things we're doing. I've been working outside my comfort zone for a couple of years now because I'm on a mission. And, you know, just so much about uh, what's going on and, and what I faced has really altered my choices and who I have become. And I guess it showed me I can kind of do anything. Look at me, I'm on the radio. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so uh, hey, everybody, here we are, another Friday, another episode of an Informed Life Radio. As we always say, you know, there has never been a more important time to live an informed life. To live an informed life, you need to make decisions. And I know that every second of every day, it seems like we're bombarded with information. It's so hard to know. We're tired of thinking. Just somebody tell me what to do. We have to make decisions on everything. Even shopping is overwhelming. I mean, how many brands? My my store has so many brands of tortillas. I mean, it's in like an aisle and a half of corn and flour tortillas. I mean, seriously, how many choices and and what's the difference between most of them? I have no idea. And there's one organic. You have to really search to find the organic one. Okay, I digress. Uh, So so let me tell you who this wonderful um, Judy is. Her name is Dr. Judy Mikovits. Okay, I'm gonna pause myself again. Mikovits or Mikovits? The argument goes around and around. What do you say? It's Mikovits in the United States and Mikovits in Europe, where one of the cousins still lives. Oh, that's awesome. So we're correct no matter how we say it. Correct. Uh, I love that. Okay, I'll go with Mike. Dr. Judy Mikovits earned a BA in chemistry from University of Virginia in 1980 and a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from George Washington University in 1992 in her 40-year quest to understand the causes of disease and ways to prevent and treat chronic diseases. She has co-authored seminal papers culminating in at least a decade of research in each of four fields, immunology, natural products, chemistry, epigenetics, and HIV AIDS drug development. In 2006, Dr. Mikovits co-founded and developed the first neuroimmune institute based on a systems biology approach. This led to the landmark 2009 publication in the journal Science of the isolation and characterization of a new family of human diseases associated disease-associated retroviruses. 
This publication was also life-changing moment for Judy because unbeknownst to her, she had just landed herself into forbidden territory. And there were, and still are, powerful individuals, industries, and government agencies that work to keep her silenced. But Judy, are you silent? Not at all. I don't think I've ever been silent, Bernadette. (laughs) And we've known each other, what, five or six years now? And I don't think you've ever known me to be silent. No. In fact, you know, the first time I met you, um, it was in Atlanta, fairly near the CDC, wasn't it? And, And I crossed the lobby of a hotel. And there, there was a woman sitting on a couch, holding court, as it were. I mean, you didn't plan it, but people just gather around you to hear what you have to say. And I stood there, and I think I understood like every fourth word, but I understood enough of what you were saying to get the gist of it, to understand, holy cow, right? This was amazing stuff. Um, but I did digress here. Um, so yeah, she refuses to be silent. She speaks, she writes, and she's featured in documentary films such as Pandemic One and Pandemic Plandemic. Planned. I know, you know, the spell check on my thing chain took the L Oops. out of there. It's, yeah. it's got an L. <laughs> Plandemic one and Plandemic two. And if you haven't already seen these documentaries, check them out. You can go to plaguethebook.com. Um, and where yeah. else? Plandemicseries.com will show you everything about those two movies, which Plandemic series, uh, Plandemic One was really supposed to be a promotional video. It was a 27-minute promotional video mm-hmm. for our book, Plague of Corruption, which published for uh, April 14th, 2020, and the movie came out May 4th. And of course, our book was in press in mm-hmm. the summer of 2019 when there was no COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So this is why the promotional video for the book looked like prophecy. You know, how did we know they were going to plandemic? How did we, why did we call our book a plague of corruption? Pretty much for everything you and I lived through in those years, me from uh, in, in more than a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to hold that thought so I can finish this. I don't even sure I need to finish it, but I'm going to finish it. <laughs> um, so Dr. Mikovits has co-authored more than 50 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters and holds a patent for combination therapy for prostate cancer using botanical compositions and chemotherapy. She's a New York Times best-selling co-author of the book's Plague, Plague of Corruption, which we just talked about, um, and The Case Against the Masks. Her next um, book, Ending Plague, A Scholar's Obligation in an Age of Corruption, will be released in August 2021. And so now officially welcome to An Informed Life Radio. But, you know, like you were you were saying there is all of this time, you know, for years, some pe- some people in what we call the medical freedom movement, the um, informed consent movement, movement, there's a whole different names we give ourselves. Everybody else just calls us anti-vaxxers or, you know, anti-science people. But, um, you know, we have other ways to define ourselves. We've been alone, right? Right, right. We we were alone saying, you guys, there's corruption in some of these agencies. Mm -hmm. There's corporate capture. Um, Fraudulent science is being published. Uh, Just there's so much wrong and people are being harmed. And we couldn't get people to listen. When you did finally get some people to listen, a lot of them were too afraid to speak up. Right. They didn't want to lose 
their jobs. Pediatricians didn't, you know, there, there was starting, of course, with Andrew Wake, well, even before Andrew Wakefield, but the industry really, the, you know, if you're going to hand out awards for, for, for creating, I don't know what would that would be for creating somebody to sustain your lie for the longest, and the, the, the longest, largest lie that vaccines are safe and effective, what you do is you frame a brilliant, kind, gentle, intelligent man like Dr. Andrew Wakefield, and then you hold him up as an example to the rest of the world of what happens when you try to go against pharma. You right. Know? And Judy, you know who was the very first guest on an informed life radio? Uh, no, I don't. It was Dr. Andy Wakefield. So fabulous. I decided I was just going to go big or, or go bold, yeah. go or go home, whatever that saying yeah, is. Yeah, go big or Andy go home. on. And now I got Judy on, you know, I'm, I'm just going to have every, I'm going to have all the top 10 most attacked people on my show. That should be my goal, you know, because you're all my heroes. You're yeah. all, you know. Well, thank you. Andy's helped me so much, in fact, um, when all of this happened to me. So they they called it Wakefielded when when my career um, ended in 2011 um, for making that rather inconvenienced um, discovery of a new family of mouse viruses, um, which most likely got into humans by contaminated vaccines, anyone, and a wow. contaminated blood supply and associated with cancers, neuroimmune disease, autism, myalgic encephalitis. Oh, that might, all of those diseases might be what we're lumping together right now and calling long haul COVID. Yeah. And, and who gets to die first from the shot? Oh, all of the people that you already injured to cover up the plague, the 20, 30 year plague of corruption. That really was engineered by Tony Fauci, the heads of the CDC, as you know, from our trips down here, they've mm -hmm. been planning this a long time. It, it, yeah, I mean, and the evidence is, is out there in plain sight and that's how you get away with it. You know, I, I'm a mystery author. Well, a mystery author on hold because I, you know, I don't have time to do that anymore. But you know, the best clues are hidden in plain sight. If you want people to be able to say, I'm not hiding anything. I didn't hide event 201. I made it publicly available. No, no, no. See, we were just planning. We were just planning how to, to react when, when an epidemic came, right? So, everything is available if you only go and look. And that's, you know, they must have the most brilliant psychologists working in their marketing department for how to do this. Um, and it dawned on me the other day, Judy, about the masks. Yeah. Um, torture. So much of what's happening has been, it, people are going to end up with PTSD after a lot of what's been going on. But I've been reading a little bit about torture. And when you when something's inconsistent and what has been the most inconsistent of all is masks. Tony says, wear them. Then he says, don't, you know, don't wear them. And then he says, wear them all the time, you know, and, and uh, then wear two of them. And then even if you're vaccinated, wear them. And now if you're not vaccinated, you don't have to wear them, but you have to wear them here. That inconsistency um, sets up a psychological sort of traumatic state. And, you know, th so there's just so many layers to, to what it is that they, 
are doing here. For some of the listeners to um, my show in the Puget Sound area on the radio, some of this might be new to them. I know we have a lot of listeners that are very familiar. They've been following from the very beginning what's going on. But there's a lot of people that are very new to this whole concept that there are people working at government and global agencies that don't have our best interest at heart and that, you know, have big plans. When you entered science, what were your thoughts about what you were going to do, Judy? Well, uh, that was June 10th. Oh, it's coming up June 10th, 1980. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was going to use natural products chemistry, my natural products chemistry degree from the University of Virginia, undergraduate degree to make drugs at the National Cancer Institute and and cure cancer with nutrition, with food, with plants. Wow. Um, (laughs) I love that goal. That is such a noble goal. And, And so you went with this joy in your heart. Um, naive to all of the undertones and what's going on. What what was your first clue that there was way more, even just politics in science than you had known about? Well, really, it stemmed around um, it stemmed around that that very idea. Those goals we actually achieved those goals. We made several natural product therapeutics um, and used things like hyperbaric oxygen therapies, uh, adoptive transfers of T cells, type one interferons that you could isolate and purify from your from animals and use therapeutically to um, to prevent um, cancers and and to heal. Um, virus-associated diseases. And and so right then and there, we were achieving these things right as we were discovering um, the first human retroviruses, that HTLV, um, human T-cell leukemia virus that caused a very aggressive cancer and was Mm -hmm. associated a decade later with all of these autoimmune neuroinflammatory diseases like paralytic diseases. Um, And then right um, very quickly on the heels was HIV. 1982, and here's AIDS and and beautiful, healthy, you know, young men um, getting really bizarre infections, tuberculosis, pneumocystis, pneumonia, you know, things that, um, you know, healthy people in the Western world don't get. But at the same time, we were actually developing curative strategies for that. And right then and there, the government shut it all down. Oh, we don't need translational research. We don't need biological response modifiers. We need to use these synthetic drugs. We need to use wow. AZT. And, and so the the movie, it, it, it didn't start until the 1993 where, where it really became knowledge to the public. So I worked from 1980 until 1992, in November of 1991, I got my PhD thesis, the mm-hmm. heart of which in biochemistry and molecular biology at George Washington, the heart of which said HIV didn't cause AIDS. And this was, I defended my thesis um, a week after Magic Johnson, the basketball star, was found to, to was tested positive mm-hmm. for having HIV. And everybody at the time was dying. So the question in my thesis committee was based on the molecular biology of your work, will he or will he not die? And, and, and so I said, well, he won't die and he won't ever get AIDS. 
but he has to change everything about what the government, what Tony Fauci, the AZT, the toxic drugs, the levels. And, and so all of this is, is memorialized in a movie, um, first in a book called um, The Band Played On by Randy Schiltz. And the movie was 1993 and um, The Band Played On and Alan Alda starred in it. So, so your listeners can go look and it's a great exercise for today because where we are right now, you know, with Fauci being revealed to have planned this pandemic and, and really a big and, and, and kill, as I said in the beginning. This is, in my opinion, premeditated murder. It's not negligent. He's known exactly what he was doing since 1999, mm -hmm. since Andy Wakefield first described the gut inflammation, the nonspecific gut inflammation in, in children that would go on to develop autism. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at that type of inflammation that the molecular biology, that's, that's my degree. Remember, you know, a virus doesn't know if you're a black man, a white man, a gay man, a, you know, IV drug user, a, you know, mm -hmm. whatever a virus knows your immune system. So the virus doesn't cause the disease. SARS-CoV-2 does not cause COVID and never did. HIV does not cause AIDS. In the 80s, it caused AIDS because everybody infected, in fact, had the disease because of the Tony Fauci was directing all the treatments towards his patents. And so we hear these stories, but this is this is the uh, interesting stories. And then you look at the Dallas Buyers Club. So the Dallas Buyers Club that, you know, Matthew McConaughey won a uh, uh, I believe uh, Academy Award for not too long ago. And you look and what they were trying to get was, oh, plant therapies, natural products, mm -hmm. cannabis, peptide mm -hmm. tea that we made in my lab or not my lab, but Dr. Rossetti's lab. So a little bit what you're saying is like we keep hearing in the news and it drives me crazy is that COVID-19 has caused so much destruction, you know, all of this, you know, children not having access to school, people losing their jobs, their lives limited. But it wasn't COVID that caused all that. It was the response to COVID that caused all that. Correct. So in the same way, if somebody was infected with HIV and they did not respond to this infection appropriately, their health might devolve to the point of AIDS. Well, but if they were given proper treatment, is that what you mean by the fact oh, that HIV absolutely. does not cause AIDS? Okay, Absolutely. So that what happened is though an entire continent was destroyed, Africa. You know, and, and we were led to believe that this was a disease. It was originally called GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. So it was just a disease of gay men. And so then, then you'll remember, you know, oh, if you weren't, if you weren't participating in that, those sexual practices, if you weren't sinning, you know, this was a, a, against God and that's why these people were dying. So we were all led to believe in our country um, and that, that this was their fault. It was their bad behavior that got them sick, which is ridiculous. Um, and, and so at the, at the end of the day, from a virological standpoint, you know, but we knew that other things 
things contributed like doing drugs and 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 be eating you know eating bad food being in bath houses um you know uh, having too many sexual partners because you get different kinds of infections and put yourself at risk of other things so there are a lot of things that go into um, environmental toxins like aluminum and and gmo food there are a lot of things that go into the development of acquired immune deficiencies and, and the virus can be a trigger but certainly not a cause okay sort of like um hpv infections may be present when you have cervical cancer but a hpv infection does not itself cause cancer absolutely that, not 99 percent so of the right. people with hpv will never get right. cancer um it really to me, and I'm an amateur, I'm a nobody, but, you know, looking at it using some common sense is that if you, if you're in a state of health that your body is having persistent infections that you're not clearing, that explains why HPV is present and why you have cancer. It doesn't mean that the virus you couldn't clear is causing the cancer. So, you know, that's the thing is what I love about our whole community of, of people. There's activists like me who entered as a mother, as just a citizen, concerned, wanting to share inform information. And I meet people like you, PhD researchers, James Lyons Weil, you know, some brilliant MDs. What I get from you guys is the most amazing respect for me as a mom being able to sort of understand things. And I so appreciate that because the average person, the average mom makes a lot of good decisions in her life and has to look at the world with common sense. And we can smell BS a mile away, right? And, and I don't when know. We... I'm not a mom. <laughs> oh, well. You, you worked in labs. Same thing. You, you know, you're working with a bunch of, yeah. Uh, but it it yeah Wait, so you know that's what that's what we lost between 19 let's just say between 1984 and and present day um we lost listening and respecting everyone the white coat became god you know what 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 you just said is everybody has a perspective and when you listen to someone and you see that perspective which is what good medicine and healthcare is it says scientists see patterns your immune system sees patterns. They're actually literally called pathogen associated molecular patterns and, 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 and danger associated molecular patterns. So frontline defenses that say something's wrong, just like a mom, something's wrong, something doesn't fit. And, and then you go investigate it. You don't deny the person, you don't call them crazy, you don't ignore it, especially when it's exploding all around you. So one of the good things I see about this um, literally world crisis um, we're in right now where our freedoms are being taken away over the common cold. Um, and, and what's happening right now is people are waking up to, you know, the life you and I have lived over the last um, decade for me, um, for, for Andy Wakefield, two decades, where, where we realize there's something wrong. And now everybody can see it. Something oh, yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah. So that's such a gift from God. 
It it really is. I mean, you and I both agree we hate that anybody's been harmed by mm-hmm. COVID and we hate that anybody's been harmed by the response to COVID, which has been the biggest harm. Nobody would have been harmed by COVID if from day one they had really focused on treatments and whatever treatments worked, worked, not who was going to make money, you know, and it's it's really crimes against humanity at this point. Um, well, it has been for a long time, but the, the silencing of ivermectin, um, I was just speaking earlier from the folks at flccc.net, everybody go to flccc.net. Um, and, you know, they're having their YouTube's taking down their videos one at a time. These are, you know, doctors with you know, practicing in ICUs with amazing degrees, healing, recovering patients using uh, a medication that has won a Nobel Prize that's on the World Health Organization's top 10 list of most essential medicines that's safer than aspirin to take. And they're being censored for talking about it. I don't understand how anybody can not see this, except for the fact that you and I and so many people in our world, we were already, you know, wide awake and suspicious of these people when things started happening. For other people who only turn on mainstream news, who only read major newspapers, and who fully trusted the FDA and the CDC and the NIH and all those um, and thought Bill Gates was just the nicest guy in the world, such a humanitarian if they thought all this to begin with. Some of them are sort of really trapped in that fear world, still Mm -hmm. triple masking up, you know. um, And and that's why we do shows like this is to speak the truth in love and and wake them up and, um, you know, show you know, an informed life, an informed choice. We're here with the Washington Patriots um, just outside of Seattle this weekend. Um, Mm -hmm. And everybody's welcome and and questions are welcome. And that's that's what we're here doing. Yeah, Um, exactly. I had a thought it squirreled right out of my head. But um, so let's talk then about treatments, because in your experience, it was really treatments that got you in trouble. It was figuring out causes that got you in trouble, both of which undermined the pharmaceutical industry. Because the you discovered retroviruses, which lo and behold, turned out could most likely have been injected, found to be in a human being through the injection process through the way vaccines are made. And I want you to sort of explain that to, mm-hmm. to listeners. And then the fact that there's a lot of money to be had in treating disease and they don't want it to be cheap and easy. In fact, Tony Fauci in, was it late 1980s, early 1990s, his name is on a paper that has to do with, with the precursors to glutathione. Um, and I can't remember the details of it. I used to know at the beginning of all this, cause I have it on our informed twist Washington website. And Glutathione was so healing for any viral illness, and mm-hmm. and yet he was absolutely silent about the need for glutathione to treat this unknown viral illness. Why not throw all of the known safe right. antivirals at it, right? But well, it, and even worse with with hydroxychloroquine. So you remember the last bat virus to um, to be 
in, infectious and contagious that mm -hmm. way um, mm -hmm. was the Ebola virus that was um, released um, upon um, Sierra Leone in Liberia um, in 2014. And this is where you know there's a problem because what happened in 2014 was William Thompson confessed um, that in fact they'd covered up that Blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, people of color were two to four times more likely to get uh, uh, autism if given MMR, those boys, before the age of three. Why? Mm -hmm. Because MMR are three RNA viruses. Mm -hmm. And their immune systems make more antibodies. They're more tuned to fighting parasites like malaria. So here, an anti-malarial drug, when that, when that Ebola outbreak erupted in Sierra Leone, just coincidentally, which we don't believe in coincidences, it was just at the time Senator Posey of Florida was, um, was questioning Thompson, who had, who had um, confessed after covering up the data that, in fact, Andy Wakefield was right, that mm -hmm. nonspecific inflammation Andy showed was something called EO Eosinophilia. Oh, that would be a type two immune response, IL-5. It would be the immune system that's skewed over here and can't respond um, to RNA viruses um, because of just the natural differences in the environments of the people. So they covered up the fa that fact back then. And um, what the doctor did in, in Liberia was he gave another doctor who clearly got exposed the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine and zinc. And he wow. stopped the epidemic with saline infusion, prayer, dark room, calm him down, keep the stress, keep the fear away mm -hmm. with hydroxychloroquine. A year later, Tony Fauci called it a vaccine. And what happened in, oh, yes, it's in a publication. Hydroxychloroquine is a vaccine. Oh, my goodness. For, I need to see that. For bat-related coronaviruses. I'll find it for you. Oh, um, good at any rate, At any rate, this was, you know, we knew this in January 2020. We knew this, you know, Dr. Zelenko and others who were using hydroxychloroquine, you know, things like budesimide. We knew this from mm -hmm. HIV. We knew how to keep the susceptible populations from dying. And, and what did you do? We do. Um, oh, made everything illegal. And acetylcysteine, you mentioned ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, zinc, um, vitamin C, vitamin D, put people in masks and suppress what? Oh, glutathione, type mm -hmm. one interferons. We know what made people sick. Mm -hmm. And, and it had nothing, essentially nothing to do with the virus released from the Wuhan lab in China. Didn't mean it wasn't released from there. We know it was, mm -hmm. it came from the, the Vero cell line. The Vero mm -hmm. monkey cell line is used in our polio vaccines. We know the only polio in the world is caused by the vaccine program. So why do we still give these shots knowing how dangerous it was? And this is really the answer to why, you know, my career had to end and I had to be silenced because 
when all liability was removed from vaccines um, by the 1986 National Vaccine Injury Compensation Act. Um, that act removed liabilities and placed it, um, the testing and the, and the compensation program right in the middle of Health and Human Services, HHS. You know, and so they, the liability was removed. The only time you were liable is if you knew how to make a vaccine safer. Oh, don't use animal cell lines to grow um, polio, MMR, um, uh, chicken pox, shingles, flu vaccines. So think of how many. So when we discovered the mouse virus family, that was, you know, strongly associated with many cancers, autism, ME/CFS, and even AIDS. Um, when we discovered that, um, you know, that would have said, you know, stop everything, stop yeah. everything, because now you're liable. So in 2011, when it was clear the blood supply had been contaminated for 30 years, as had vaccines, um, then. Um, you know, Tony Fauci just decided um, uh, in, in a corrupt Supreme Court and a corrupt justice system, a corrupt uh, everything about it, just shut it down mm. and make it all go away. And that's why that's what we're living in right now. This is why COVID COVID wow. is COVID is an operation to kill the injured and, and bury the facts that I'm telling you now so that nobody will ever know there's XMRVs and that there were XMRVs in the first wave of AIDS deaths. It's clear SARS-CoV-2 did not cause COVID. So many questions just arise. <laughs> um, first, though, explain to listeners how mice viruses end up in vaccines. Explain to them the process of, of what happens, how you culture. You used to have this really funny, you know what I'm talking about. I can share the screen if you'd like. Sure. If you've got it handy, you can share um, that and it'll end up on the, in the video and then we'll just describe it okay. um, in words to the radio audience. So, um, okay. Yeah, I'll do it. Okay. So let's see. Yeah. Okay. Because I, you know, um, vaccines are not made like, like other drugs. It's not just you add the ingredients and it's always the same vaccines, the traditional ones, not these new MRNA ones, but traditional vaccines, um, you have to take a little bit of the virus or bacteria and you have to grow it. It's a, it, you know, and you have to feed it and yeah. go ahead. They're, they're called obligate parasites. So here's the cartoon. Uh, okay. That was originally drawn by, um, I can't see her name, but Althina um, Freedoms Phoenix Ernie Hancock about 2015. I, I tried for weeks to explain to him what retroviruses were and how they got into vaccines. Well, uh, this paper was published in Frontiers in Microbiology. And so one of the biological products that we use in our lab is mice and mouse tissue. So we cripple them and we put them in. So you see there the mouse-omatic here. So mice, you just grind them all up after you grow, you would pass the, the polio vaccine through mouse brains to attenuate it, the polio virus, sorry, through the mouse brains. And then you chew them all up. And you remember the Bassomatic from Saturday Night Live? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm older than you are. So you'd, you'd chew them all up here in the mouse-omatic and then you'd culture them in the blue, in the blue fermenter. This is a Vero monkey kidney cell. And so you just grow them all together and you don't purify it at all 
because there's no liability. So you don't have to clean them up. And then you just inject it directly into the most vulnerable um, shown there a black baby under three years old. And so wow. that, and, and that was clearly, it was published in, a, in an opinion paper in Frontiers in Microbiology in 2011, January. And it said, it's possible that these mouse virus particles, xenotropic means foreign, they're not in humans. Um, and we've, we've long known that xenotransplantation, putting animal parts in humans can jump viruses into other species, cause accelerated evolution. We'd say that they're okay. present in the virus stocks cultured in the mice or mouse cells for vaccine production. We use lots and lots of mouse cell lines and that that virus was transferred to the human by the vaccination. And so it was clear 6% of um, the U.S. in the studies that were done between October 2009, when it when our first paper was published in the journal Science, that was that landmark paper, um, <laughs> that um, 4%, 3.75% of the controls. And um, and, and the last study that was done, it was 6% of the controls. So this is 25 times HIV AIDS at the height there in 1991, when we were talking about Magic Johnson at mm. the height of the AIDS epidemics, this was simply a disease our country and world couldn't afford because, as I said, they were liable. They were liable because the the um, the immunity didn't hold if you knew how to make a vaccine safer, and our discovery told them that. So you know, you really got me thinking here, not just you know, there's your discovery of the retroviruses, which is one major problem with how vaccines are currently made. And then we know administration timing is another problem. The adjuvants are another problem. Uh, You know, too many too soon, another problem, not uh, individualizing them, um, having them for infections that most children would get over much better on their own. So not targeting who should have it, but the blanket, there's, there's just so many things that have now led to chronic Mm. illness in society. And And doesn't all, all, doesn't all of that sound like COVID? Everything you just said, right. The kids don't get sick. What are you doing that for? You gave it to the most susceptible population, this shot that already had chronic illnesses or comorbidities and who's dying? Those people, the most heavily vaccinated young people are having severe adverse and dying from the shot. You know, I remember once when um, Del Bigtree came out here um, and he spoke to some of our legislators sitting in a hallway waiting for an appointment. And I said, you know, you know, Del, people, human beings, the way they are, um, you know, sometimes you have to give them away so they're not going to lose face because the it's just unimaginable that at some point our American government would say that they have harmed people, that they have allowed a program to go on, that it caused so much hard, so much harm. And, you know, how, how do you ever come out and say that? I said, you know, I think that the only thing could save them. And this is because of who I am. And I tend to be a Pollyanna. I said, what we need is something that they can see as the next best thing to move to, because that's what our government tends to do. They don't admit fault, but they say, gosh, look at this is better. What we were doing was really, really good. 
but this is even better. So we're going to move over here and do this. And I kept thinking if we found that, that's something better, but it would have to make a lot of money because the drug industry would have to be the ones profiting from it if they wanted to, you know, if we had any hopes that the government would follow along. I just wanted to stop the damage. And that was the only way I could think maybe we could see our way out of it in the future. But what they did was a complete 180. They right. decided to just take everybody down, basically. Right. <laughs> and, and, and take everybody down and cover it up. So when you when you cremate the victims and call it something it's not, you'll never, ever, ever know. And more and more people were waking up to it. We have Dr. Paul's book that came out that showed his healthy kids. More and more vax, unvax, independent studies have been coming up, coming out, showing the harm um, that the programs have been doing, showing the harm of so many things of the way the drug industry handles disease and medicine and that sort of thing. And and, you know, they have long been trying to suppress natural treatments for everything. One of the most alarming things happened when just very recently the FDA said, no, 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 you can't be selling NAC and acetylcysteine over the counter. During COVID, of course, sales of NAC at Amazon and all the online retailers and everywhere you could look has been selling out. Why? Because Americans are pretty good about looking up how do I stay healthy and how do I protect my immune system? And everybody was educating about glutathione and the building blocks of glutathione and you need some N-acetylcysteine. And now they're saying it's a drug and they're battling with the retailers saying you can't sell it as a supplement. You can't get it anymore. You can still get L-cysteine, but you can't get N-acetylcysteine. Yeah. And then the FDA has announced that they're looking very closely at injected B12, melatonin, and I can't remember, there was, a, there was another one in particular. But so they're going after three of the four of the sort of the top strongest, you know, tools that those who practice alternative and natural healing use. Correct. Natural products, medicine. So what what our last book hopefully is called, <laughs> hopefully our last book is called Ending Plague, A mm -hmm. Scholar's Obligation in an Age of Corruption. And what I, what a scholar's obligation is at every level is stop this. It's time the FDA was completely overhauled and the criminals at the top gone. It's yes. time the CDC was overhauled and the criminals. In fact, you could just end the CDC. All they're doing is making Americans sick. They're, they're this Centers for Dishonesty and Corruption or Disease Causation, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, and, and so they have to just go away. There's no value. There's no use. And, um, and they're shown to be a criminal organization. And, um, and, so, and, and the same thing for the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. I think of my friend, um, Dr. David Lewis, who wrote the book, Science for Sale. And that was before I even journeyed into this um, mm -hmm. minefield. Um, mm -hmm. So, we, you know, we have to change the way all of healthcare. The FDA gave itself authority to decide what could be used, which drug or natural product could be used in which situation. The, the, the powers given to them were for safety 
of food and drugs. So once a manufacturer, anyone provides safety for it for a health health um, technology, no matter what it is, a medical device, then that's all the FDA is, has authority to do. But uh, during the 60s, they gave themselves the authority to regulate drugs and what could be used for what I used to say, hey, I discovered it. I'll use it any way I want, mm-hmm. and um, and I do. So they don't. Come, nobody's gonna come after me again. Um, at any rate, um, but this is the problem. Our food is toxic. GMO mm-hmm. is toxic. We've known since the mid '80s mm-hmm. that that GMO is is toxic, genetically modified organisms. So our food causes cancer. You know, Bobby Kennedy and Children's Health Defense won the lawsuit for for gly, um, glyphosate Roundup. Mm-hmm causing cancer. Our food is toxic. Our soil is contaminated with glyphosate. So Stephanie Seneff could step up and David Lewis, David Lewis could run the EPA um, with integrity. And and Stephanie Seneff, the expert, um, one of the experts in in glyphosate toxicity and mechanisms could could be the head of the FDA. And I said, we don't need the CDC. Um, We're good. And so you see there's, there's a solution solution and and it's to put people of integrity at the top and then take down these corrupt journals which are propaganda masquerading as science they're they're commercials for big pharma they're not science they're propaganda and 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 it needs to end the way our universities are funded the way researchers are funded everything needs to end and this is what we talk about in our book ending plague because a scholar's obligation is to produce knowledge and then communicate it. In every walk of life, you are a scholar as a mother. You produce knowledge on patterns. Yeah. Um, and so this is this is why we wrote it, and hopefully that will end forever. Um, uh, these age, uh, this age of corruption we've been in the last hundred years. I love that you're giving us hope. You you showed us how to stand up and be brave in times when, you know, really all we want to do is run away. Um, and you showed us how to fight. And now you're helping provide a pathway forward so that maybe we can all kick back and relax and let our adrenaline lower. We've been living in flight or fight mode way too long, Judy, especially you. you <laughs> oh, know. No, I live in party mode, honey. Oh, good for you. Every single thing I do is a party. Whenever I come home, my, my husband holds a welcome home party. I, I don't live in flight or fright. I, but- I, I keep my immune system balanced. I use cannabinoids. I use um, lovely things like dimethylglycine, sunshine, mm-hmm. the pool, um, um, a, a good martini now and again. <laughs> I know we keep we keep our life full of joy. Every one of our meetings ends in a party because we need to dance, sing, laugh and and love each other. Yeah, that is so very important. I'm so glad that you're doing that and and you're looking out for yourself in that way. I I wanted to ask you if you had any inside scoop. This is getting, you know, to listeners who are new to this. This doesn't sound really bizarre, but I swear it's true. Check it out. Go look up the um photographs from inauguration day for biden go look for the ones that are like outside the capitol there where he's walking he's in a long dark jacket and you know he's with his wife and then there's the vp and her husband and a couple other people all the men are in these dark long jackets and all of the women are in various cat colors of the 
TV show that was a book, The Handmaid's Tale. Have you seen those photographs? It blows your mind. But I know The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it would be one thing if just one of the women was wearing one of the colors. But there are five different colors represented, and they are sort of appropriate to the ranking, even down to the young girl was wearing pink. And when I saw it, I thought it was photoshopped or something. It's like, this is hysterical. Yeah, right, whatever. Um, so then I go look, and I went to CNN, and I went everywhere. No, these are authentic photos. How That just doesn't happen. And then I started thinking um, later on that there is one EUA drug. Remdesivir, only one EUA drug. And it's made, I don't remember Handmaid's Tale, the name of the civil, this weird takeover, tyrannical type of place to live. It's called Gilead. The makers of Remdesivir, the the drug company is called Gilead. And I just, after seeing that photo of Inauguration Day and then Gilead being given the only emergency use authorization for their treatment, which doesn't work. Right. Even they're still using it. Studies keep came, coming out saying it does not improve outcomes, right. doesn't shorten time of illness. They're making billions. Some of the people working on it are people that I recognize from some of your work and your past and a lot of ties there to Tony Fauci. You know, I'm, I'm like maybe saying something against, I'm, you know, I apologize if it's a completely innocent company and there's there's no ties to what's going on. I'm just saying, I'm just pointing out coincidences that are just really too bizarre. I didn't know if you had any clues there. Some of the people had worked in HIV and, you know. Oh, I yes, when, when we made our discoveries of the mouse retroviruses, Gilead was on our doorstep. We know the antiretroviral therapies all the way back. That's why I mentioned a few weeks ago, the drug Suramin. The drug Suramin, not made by Gilead, but it's not patentable. It's a hundred-year-old essential medicine, Ah. another anti-parasitic drug, which Ah. happens to work really good Mm -hmm. against mouse leukemia viruses. Oh, and and so what did what was done in 2015? A double-blind placebo-controlled study, very very low dose, has a very long half-life was used wrong in the 80s, mm. um, but did in fact cure a few retrovirus-associated cancers. Mm. And so here it was outlawed. It's illegal. That double-blind placebo-controlled study in 2015 showed that little boys um, that with autism actually started talking, actually got their life back when you stop the expression of the retrovirus. So what I, you know, when you know, and you said it at the beginning of the show, Mm -hmm. when you know the cause and you find, you know, and the cure matches, then Mm -hmm. you've got your plague of corruption. And Mm -hmm. so, so what, what, you know, what was done? Oh, Mm -hmm. Monsanto Bayer took away Mm -hmm. all of the sermon. It's illegal to use in this country since 2015, when it was a part of a curative strategy, these kids could have gotten their life back. 
But again, if you've, if you've got cause and you've got cure, then it says, yes, it was that. It was the shot. It was that. Um, the contaminated blood supply and, and you are at fault and you are liable government. And so Gilead just simply in 2000 and, you know, and 10, 9 and 10, they came right to me when our paper came out and they wanted to make a whole bunch of new drugs. So what do we, you know, but they were kept from the patients with the neuroimmune diseases, but not kept from the patients with the cancer. And yes, Gilead is at fault. They, they've, they've known since the days of HIV. And, uh, and, and so they are making a lot of money. And not everybody, they're good people working there. But, mm -hmm. um, but of course, um, yeah. you know, at the top, we have the, you know, the billionaires. And at the top, you'll probably mm -hmm. find an association with Tony Fauci, or Robert Redfield, or Deborah Burks, the very mm -hmm. people who drove the mm -hmm. pandemic called COVID-19. Yeah. Well, we've just got a few more minutes um, before I'm going to let you go here. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. I, I want you to remind listeners again where they can go get your books, where they can see Plandemic and read more about you. Yeah. Well, you can get our books um, at all major booksellers. Um, you can see um, my talks, various um, information at our book at our website, plaguethebook.com. And you can see all of Plandemic and go down that rabbit hole. Many, many, many of the full length lectures at plandemicseries.com. It gets hacked a lot, but it comes back. Um, and then I encourage your listeners to um, um pre-order our book, Ending Plague, mm -hmm. um, A Scholar's Obligation in Age of Corruption. The only place you can do that is Amazon. So I, I know how most of us feel about Amazon, but um, if the book isn't, it will be censored. With Plague of Corruption, the only people that got the book on April 14th when it came out were the people who pre-ordered it. And I hadn't even done that. So I didn't get a hard copy oh, no. of my own book. Oh, so I did. Not, <laughs> now I'm going to order a hundred of the of the new book, and it should come out in early August, where I'm on final edits right now. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, let's let's put you and that book on the bestseller list. This is this isn't just something you're buying for yourself. This is something you're buying for a better future. You know, it, absolutely. We need to be informed. We all need to learn and know and explore and share the information. And I think, um, kind of as a parting thought. Um, as a big thank you to you. Thank you for being who you are and showing us the way for being brave and being humble um, and, and for partying <laughs> because we all need to do that too. And everybody, wherever you are, we need to learn from Judy because we all have to stand our ground. We have to stand and fight in place for what is right. We do it with grace in our hearts and with a lot of love and compassion, but we stand and fight. Thank you, Judy. Thank and you thank you, it. listeners. You've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We're going for a short break. When we come back, we've got another hour of radio. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. 
but we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Hello and welcome back to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host Bernadette Pager. If you were with us in the last hour, you got to hear from the wonderful, the brilliant, the brave Dr. Judy Mikovits. It was just such an honor to have her on the show. She's definitely one of my heroes. I don't know how comfortable anybody is being called a hero when, you know, um, it, it might put an expectation uh, on you, and I hope she doesn't feel any pressure from that. It's just pure gratitude for her just being who she is and, and showing us the way, because really she has, she has modeled probably uh, standing up in difficult situations most of us will never experience. I hope we won't experience. And yet today, with everything going on in the world, with the response to to COVID-19, what's being revealed about how it's being used, abused, the fraud at the federal level, what's, you know, so much is coming out. It's, it's a lot of stuff we've been talking about here on the show about a lot of problems that are going on. In some states, people's lives are getting back to normal and, and, and they're not really feeling what we're feeling in, in what I'm calling some of the closed states. And I'm in Washington state. I'm in one of the, the closed states. There's Oregon and California and New York. And um, some of these states, you would think that the Black Plague had just arrived with the orders that have just been issued within the past few weeks about you know who can do what. We're living in a very segregated society with those who have agreed to get the investigational emergency use products being set free from masks and distancing, even though the science of the vaccines themselves, they're not really vaccines, they're a genetic therapy, but the science of them shows it doesn't prevent infection or transmission. 
natural immunity does and natural immunity, the current science is showing is very, very strong. And in the latest bone marrow studies, have you guys seen the latest bone marrow study? I need to get that up on the website. shows that natural immunity is likely lifelong, that long lasting. The human immune system is a brilliant, complex thing. All we need to do is properly support it, right? But Judy, what we're, you know, what Judy has had to face and stand up to and be strong in the face of is exactly what we need to do in our lives. When our bosses come to us and say, you know, you're going to have to do this or else, we have to educate them. We have to educate school teachers. We have to educate school boards, entire school districts, health districts, health officers, the milkman everybody. We have to educate everybody. And when somebody's going to try to force you to do something you know is wrong for you, for your health, for somebody else's health, we're going to have to take that hard stand. We're going to have to make some tough decisions. There might be temporarily not being able to have access to what you want to do as you begin, as you continue to fight, to educate, to get scientific integrity in the policies being passed down. <clears throat> That's kind of what I do. That's what I kind of thrive on, I guess. There is is providing education. That's what Informed Choice Washington does. That's what Children's Health Defense does. And thank you so much to Children's Health Defense for sponsoring Inform Life Radio. And thank you to the thousands and thousands of members of Informed Choice Washington, who gives something every month to be sure we can be on the air, that we can have our website up, that we can distribute information and try to educate. Education is the key to everything. But organizations like Informed Choice Washington and Children's Health Defense can only do so much. We can't be everywhere. One of the problems going on now is that the battle lines are scattered. There's not just one place where your your liberty and your health are being threatened. It's everywhere. It's everywhere you go in all these little mini fronts. And so what we really need is for individuals to empower themselves with knowledge. And we'll do our best to provide you with all the information that we can assemble. We'll try to stay on top of it. We'll put it on our website. We'll support you. You are not alone. Believe me, you are not alone in the world. Um, visit us, call us, contact us. We will do what we can to support you. But you need to take that information and you need to gather people around you who, who figure it out, who you educate and who join you and who stand up at work, at school, at church, at the hospital, everywhere you go so that we don't let what is what they're attempting to do um, ever succeed. And what they're attempting to do, of course, is to have a segregated society, um, vaxxed versus unvaxxed with everybody having some sort of digital ID, and this will be how we're tracked and controlled forever. Whenever they want to control us and shut us down, they'll just say, gosh, there's a plague coming, there's a flu, there's, I, I guess there's uh, some now bird flu coming out of China that we've been hearing about for a while. They're gonna be another strain of this, another strain of that. It's easy to control people with fear. That's why we need to educate ourselves, because the antidote to fear is knowledge. 
is information about what to do. And your immune system is very powerful. If properly supported, natural immunity rocks. And natural immunity just needs the right tools. Once in a while, those tools are modern medicine. Ivermectin is a modern medicine, but it's 40-year-old off-patent modern medicine that won a Nobel Prize that's on the World Health Organization's top list of most essential medicines. And and yet the powers that be are deciding um, not to tell the world about it. And it's very sad. However, people are rising up in other countries. It's being used more and more. People are just saying, I don't care what the government says. We're going to use it. Some governments are embracing. It's fantastic. Other governments, they're not as controlled by the drug industry as ours are using it. And with that said, I'm going to move from the wonderful Judy last hour into the FLCCC to um, their Dr. Pierre Corey. And there was a fantastic interview that he did on a show, a podcast called Dark Horse. Some of you might be familiar with this. It's new to me. And it's run by a gentleman called Brett Weinstein. Um, And this is a two and a half hour long interview, but it's been watched more than 359,000 times. It's still up on YouTube, and I'm not sure why, because YouTube continues to censor anything that mentions ivermectin. I don't know how they had missed it so far, but it's still up. But if if it, if it ever goes away, don't worry. You can watch the full uh, two and a half hour at brettweinstein.net. That's B-R-E-T-W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N.net. Um, but I'm going to be playing for you right here. I, I contacted uh, Brett and asked his permission to play um, some of this interview. It's so important. It's so important. Knowledge is power. Even if you were, um, even if you got one of the shots, there are breakthrough cases happening. Tens of thousands, if not more. We CDC has told us they're no, not going to tell us the numbers anymore. They are telling us the numbers of hospitalizations and deaths, and um, I will look those up to tell you at the at the end of this hour the current number of hospitalizations and deaths in fully vaccinated people who got COVID anyway and were hospitalized and died. So you need to know treatments even if you chose to get one of the investigational products. If you chose not to get it, you need these treatments. If you had long haul, you might want to get one of um, choose some of these treatments, and. It's something that you need to know and properly supporting your immune system, properly knowing how these medicines act and knowing the politics behind why you may or may not have already heard about this is equally important in protecting your health because those who want to make money off of illness um, are working overtime to suppress this information. So I'm going to go ahead and do a quick share here. If you'll bear with me for just a minute. I'm going to play this for you. Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. I am sitting with Dr. Pierre Corey, who is the president and chief medical officer of the FLCCC, which is the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. He is also a lung specialist and an ICU specialist. Welcome, Dr. Corey. Brett, thanks for having me. Really good to be here. 
I could not be more excited about this podcast. I really have the sense that the story that you and I are about to uh, um, delve into couldn't possibly be more important. There's a tremendously hopeful aspect of it, and there's a tremendously frightening aspect of it. Um, And I am just simply looking forward to having it in the world well understood. Before we do that, though, I think I need to say a word or two in light of the fact that there is what we will talk about, an industrial strength campaign to censor this story, and I need to say something rather directly to those who are most likely to attempt to censor it. What I want to say is that Dr. Corey is not only an advocate for a therapy that is incredibly useful in the context of COVID-19, but he is also someone who has pioneered therapies already that are now the standard of care for COVID-19 patience. That means he has earned the right to talk about whatever he thinks is important. For my part, as you know, I was also very early on the lab leak hypothesis, and I was very careful about how I presented it. And of course, in the last month, that hypothesis has been vindicated. Everyone, including Dr. Ralph Barrick, who is the leading expert in the world on bat-borne coronaviruses and their modification in the lab, has acknowledged that a leak from the lab in Wuhan, China, is plausible. I have also earned the right to talk about what I want to talk about and what I think is necessary. We are now going to have a conversation, and if you don't like it, that YouTube is your problem. We are entitled to discuss this because a lot depends on it. And what we do when issues are complex is we hash them out and figure out what's true through dialectic. So that's what we're going to do. Yeah. I appreciate that. You know, you already said a few things, Brad. I like that hopeful part because there is a lot of weirdness. The censorship is unpleasant. But ultimately, this is a message. There's a really hopeful message about science here. And so um, that's why I'm really glad to be here. And I'm glad to see just more scientists of credibility willing to really look at the evidence behind a a phenomenally effective therapy. And so, uh, like I said, I'm really happy to be here. Great. Well, let me say, um, I think the evidence is incredibly compelling and that the fact that it is compelling and yet not widely known is um, an important fact in and of itself. There, There are layers to an onion to this story. And whatever it is that causes an obviously useful therapy Um, to be suspected in ways that it shouldn't be um, based on the evidence, whatever that thing is, is also a disease of sorts. Somehow we have to get to a place where evidence-based medicine really means evidence-based medicine. I agree. No, you're right. I like that you just said disease. I mean, it is... It's it's a symptom of dysfunction in our system. I mean, our system is creating this problem around uh, a really effective medicine. And it's... It's really damaging. All right. So I'd like to step back a little bit. Uh, Obviously, the best thing to do from the point of view of uh, an interesting discussion is go right to the heart of the matter. But I really think it's important that a couple of things are on the table first. Um, Number one on that list is your organization, the FLCCC, is not an ivermectin organization. It was founded, as I understand it, to discover what the most useful therapies for COVID-19 were in the early days of the pandemic. 
So do you want to say something about where you started? Yeah. So the first thing I have to say is that we start with Professor Paul Marek. So um, Paul Marek is um, – he's actually the, the most published uh, intensivist in the history of our field who's actually practicing medicine. The other doctor who published uh, more doesn't see patients. So so Paul is a – he's sort of a giant in our field, well-known internationally. And what happened was when COVID was rolling to our shores and it really kind of hit you know, New York and Seattle – some uh, prominent doctors went to Paul and said, hey, you got to come up with a protocol because Paul's well known for his protocols for sepsis and whatnot. Get a group of your colleagues, put together a protocol to treat this. And that's what he did. And I I'm honored to be a member of that team. And so Paul and I started talking with the group and we put together a protocol. And our first protocol actually <laughs> included blood thinners, pretty aggressive, and corticosteroids at a time when every national and international uh, society basically said there's insufficient evidence and do not use. In fact, they thought corticosteroids were harmful. Um, I was actually invited to give Senate testimony back in May where I testified in the Senate that it was critical to use corticosteroids, that lives were being lost. And as you might know, I got killed for that. We got killed for that. We were totally criticized for not having an evidence base to say that on. And we actually did. Our reading of the evidence was that you had to use it. And so that basically, that's how we came together. And that was the first components of our protocol. But like you said, ivermectin was not in our protocol initially. So uh, I find this just stunning. You discovered as clinicians that corticosteroids and blood thinners were uh, important in the treatment of COVID patients. And in trying to make this point, you were criticized and then vindicated. This yeah. is now standard of care. Both right? are standard of care. Standard of yeah. care. So in thinking about this <clears throat> question, right, there's a, a barrage of nonsense that comes back when you even say the word ivermectin. People have to realize who they're up against. They're up against people who have not only been successfully treating patients but have been innovating the standard of care. The very same people are now talking about ivermectin and its potential. And that is the context in which what you say about this drug has to be taken. And, you know, if you look at our, like, if you go to our website and you look at our uh, sort of resume or our contributions to the field, <clears throat> sorry, you're going to see, you know, repeated contributions over decades. So the, you know, the world expert at steroids and lung disease is Umberto Maduri, and he is part of our five that started the FLCCC. There's a lot of his guidance around steroids that we, you know, uh, put it in our protocols. And so, I mean, I can't, I keep saying you can't call upon more credibility and experience, not only in evidence base, but in clinical medicine, literally treating critical illnesses for decades. And, and that's what we do. So um, I have my own trajectory into this story much later than yours. Uh, you know, as I started to understand how strange this story was, and that, of course, spurred me on to dig deeper and deeper, the thing that I find so strange about it, you know, I've been to a number of these battles. Yeah. Um, this isn't my first rodeo, as, as some would say. In general, the people who one ends up defending in such a circumstance are, uh, they are fringe, and they may have something very important to say, but there is something about them that is hard for people to understand at first. You guys, you're blue chip. 
you guys are absolutely unimpeachable. You couldn't ask for better credentials. You couldn't ask for a better publication record. You guys are, you know, center of your discipline. And yet you are being dismissed as if you were kooks on the fringe making wild-eyed claims. So, you know, I have to say, I, I haven't seen a battle like this. And I'm a bit excited to see what happens when, you know, the heroes of the story are uh, also squeaky clean and, uh, yeah. you know, speaking plain <laughs> English. We're not fringe. Right. That's for sure. You're not Never fringe. Been, yeah. yeah. So, okay, that's remarkable. I Before we get to the ivermectin question, though, I do want to talk to you a little bit about what it looked like as you, as a lung specialist, an ICU specialist, were encountering COVID patients and coming to understand what they were really sick with, rather, I mean, I remember the early days of the pandemic and the sort of groping for reason, why do the symptoms look like this, right? Is it a lung disease? Is it a blood disease? What is it? So what did happen with these patients? What did you realize about them? Yeah, so <clears throat> sorry about um, uh, clearing my throat, but you know, it was clearly, you know, what was clearly recognized early on is that it was a disease of phases, right? So it started out as a general viral syndrome. Most people recovered, self-limited, and it's like a cold, right? Sometimes a little, little bit more severe than a cold. But everyone quickly realized that around day five, seven, eight, there was a proportion of patients who suddenly started dropping their oxygen levels. And basically their lungs were inflamed. And we now know that it's a cell called a macrophage, which gets activated and literally attacks the lungs. And so you have this sort of immune response that is attacking the lungs and the lungs start to fail. So yeah. a macrophage is like an amoeba-like cell that yep. goes around basically garbage collecting. Yes. It does a little scavenger. more than that. Yeah, it's yeah. a scavenger cell. So yeah, it yeah. was attacking it's like the, the lung front tissue. Line, it's the front line of defense, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, and it, and it goes into the lungs and it causes a lot of inflammation. And so that inflammation injures the lung. And so you could see the lungs not starting not to work. And so it's predominantly a severe lung disease. And and what I will never forget in my life is those early months because, and I'm going to go back to that steroid thing. We saw patients, just this disease marching straight to the ventilator. And so many people were landing on ventilators. And you remember people were running out of ventilators. And there was two reasons for that. One is because the entire healthcare community globally said this is a viral disease, so supportive care only. You're talking about Tylenol and fluids. And as they did supportive care only, because there was no randomized controlled trials letting them know what to do, like everyone talks about evidence-based. I'm always like, what about experience-based medicine? Like I've been doing this for 30 years. Why can't I do what my experience tells me to do? I don't have randomized controlled trials, but to do nothing was leading to ventilator shortages. Okay, I, I want to... Clear one thing up for my audience who won't be familiar with the, the terminology and then make a point uh, about Please. what you've just said. The first thing is, uh, what did you call this uh, policy of uh, uh, Tylenol and... Supportive, supportive care, care only. So the idea here is that historically speaking, we have had very little to do about viruses. Yes. We've been tremendously effective with uh, antibiotics against bacteria, against fungi. They don't, in general, work against viruses. And antiviral therapies have been a dicey business for Absolutely. a long time. What does work has been vaccines. <clears throat> Um, but if you get to a pandemic and you don't have a vaccine, what you were effectively being told is, look, 
there's not a whole lot of positive intervention you can do. So let's just make them comfortable, rescue them if they need to be rescued. But other than that, kind of hands off. But here's the here's here's one of the mistakes. So it is correct to say we don't have good antiviral therapies. It's incorrect to say that they were dying of the virus. We knew relatively early on. By the time they get to the ICU and they're that sick, there's not a lot of viral replication going on. In fact, you can't culture virus after about day seven or eight. And so it's actually disease of inflammation, not viral invasion. In fact, in autopsy series, only 20% do they find what's called cytopathic changes from the virus into the lung. And so <clears throat> it wasn't – you didn't have to go after the virus at that point. You had to actually check the inflammation. Okay. So again, I want to do a little translation for the audience. So inflammation – and by the way, this is a place where I would take doctors to task. But right. doctors often treat something like information as if it's – inflammation as if it's simply bad. The fact is inflammation is an adaptation yes. that often gets out of control and Absolutely. it can easily kill you, right? Over-exuberant. Right. So we have so, to bring it into check. Yes. You, you, so yeah. what you're telling me is that COVID patients were infected with the virus. It triggered a pathway that is part of healing but triggered an overreaction. And the patients Absolutely. who were dying on these ventilators weren't really dying of the virus being so very active. They were dying of this cascade of events that follows the body's attempt to fight off a pathogen it's never seen. It was a reaction to the, in fact, one of the most impressive studies um, that uh, Paul actually highlighted is that they, what we think triggers the inflammation is actually the viral debris. It's the RNA that actually has this, it triggers this massive response to the virus. So it's not the virus. It's actually the debris of the dead virus that does it. So it's – Well, let me uh, flag something for the future. Um, my advisor, who's now gone, a guy named Dick Alexander, used to talk um, about the point in a uh, in a, a respiratory illness when you stop coughing <clears throat> on behalf of your virus and start coughing on your own behalf. And the point mm -hmm. he was making was that actually – the these pathogens necessarily induce changes that cause them to be passed on. So they will yeah. create irritation, they will create right. inflammation, they will create all kinds of phenomena that are symptoms that are actually basically the the ecology that allows them to thrive. To transmit. Right. Okay. And so in a sense, I don't know why it's the viral debris, but there's a pretty good chance that this virus learned that by creating debris, it could cause a lot of stuff to accumulate in the lungs that got ejected in some chaotic way. Who knows? It could be. Yeah. So I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. It, it's, it's worth thinking about. But the other point I, I wanted to make in reference uh, to your sense as a clinician that you were you know, effectively having your hands tied behind your back when you knew a whole lot about patients and were learning more every day, right? You needed to be freed to try things. And the point I would make is once upon a time, before we were born, doctors were scientists. Yes. They had fewer tools, but what they had was a whole lot of experience. And even I, I want to bring attention to the house call, which has now effectively gone extinct. Yeah. But the house call allowed a doctor who didn't have a huge range of you know, pharma, pharmacological agents or tools at his disposal. But what he did have was the ability to observe patterns, right? Observe so patterns. if people on one side of town were sick with something and people on the other side of town weren't, maybe there was something in the water, for example. So anyway, that ability to observe patterns was part of a scientific mindset that my impression, having interacted with doctors over my lifetime, is that that mindset has basically dwindled. 
you know, I love that you're going back because I love the history of medicine. And when I read stuff from 100 years ago, you're constantly shocked by how much they knew with very little of it. I mean, they don't have the experience, you know, the experiments or the, the techniques to discover what now we know. They did it all by powers of observation. Just and, the, and really, medicine was created by the best doctors who had the keenest powers. So the giants of medicine had these unbelievable powers of observation, and they were able to do a lot. And, and that's what I always say to my students. I always say that what separates sort of them from me, it's we've read the same books. We all have, you know, the, the textbooks. I said, but an expert has pattern recognition. You just see diseases play out. You see how different people react to same illnesses. And you just get to see patterns and patterns. And and what happened to me, I love talking about this, but, you know, every time I came to the bedside of a patient and there was something wrong with them, I always had to very deliberately kind of analyze, like, could it be this or this or this? And after about a couple of years being immersed in ICU medicine, I noticed that I could now walk into a room and just like with very little information, just kind of know what was going on. It suddenly became like intuitive and second nature. And it was all just about observing patterns. And so I, I think that's really key. And and that's why with this disease, like I, I, this is not an ego exercise, but we knew you had to anticoagulate these patients within like four patients. Like we knew they were clotting to degrees that we hadn't seen. And there was so much controversy around putting someone on a blood thinner, which people are put on blood thinners in hospitals for far less reasons than we were promoting with this. And so it was just evidence-based maniacism. It was bizarre. They, like now you can't observe, you can't make clinical reasoning, you can't deduce, you need a trial before you do anything. Okay. So this is, I must tell you, exactly the same <clears throat> in my field, right? The people who are really good uh, evolutionary biologists or ecologists, evolutionary yeah. ecologists in, in the best cases, um, have intuition. They know how to follow a hunch. They know how to figure out when their hunches are wrong. Yes. Right? The point is, it's a it's an art more than a science, actually. No question. And in the case of a brand new pandemic that is spreading like wildfire, this is, of course, exactly the mindset that you want. You want people who are capable of deducing that there is some pattern and then figuring out whether they were fooled by some sort of uh, noise pattern or whether it was actually something, testing a hypothesis. But there is a point at which you know, and you know better than a study because you, you know, you've acted on that hunch and you've seen that the patients get better and it happens enough times that it can't be random. And so... Anyway, there's something about the mindset of the moment in which it's all about peer review and these published peer-reviewed papers, and it's all about the official guidance from, you know, the WHO and the yep. CDC. Yep. And it's basically a kind of intellectual authoritarianism yes. that is so bizarre in the context of a complex system like medicine, especially in the context of a brand new disease that, you know, we're all not experts in. There are no experts that we can simply default to. Everybody's, you know, a novice. It, I'd like that term, intellectual authoritarianism, because and it, it actually, although I don't know that it was occurring to this degree or even remotely to this degree pre-COVID. I, I actually I looked around in COVID and I started to see like all the institutions coming up with their treatment protocols. You weren't allowed to stray from the protocol. Even like if you're an expert and you're like, I want to like literally the leaders of the hospitals were saying, don't use and you couldn't do anything else. You couldn't actually doctor. And suddenly I felt like I was being handcuffed. Well, it, it was bizarre. I've never seen that in my life before. I have the sense that doctors have been demoted 
forcibly demoted from the position of scientific clinician to technician. And the yes. point is you're really delivering a prepackaged good more than you are uh, coming to understand your patient and what they're sick yes. with and what they therefore need. And it's a travesty. I've never been asked to do that before. I've always been asked to use the the best extent of my experience and judgment and insight to best help the patient. That's the oath I took. My the oath wasn't do what the gods of science and we Paul calls the uh, the the healthcare leaders the gods of science and knowledge, right? Because mm. this sort of you know we're just little mortals and we have to listen to the gods and and I've never been asked that before to 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 get advice from. Oftentimes, I'm sorry, but I don't want to sound so dismissive, but. Many of them are really desk jockeys. I mean, they're not on the front lines. I mean, <clears throat> they're reading some papers. They think they know what the disease is. They don't know what this disease is. They're not sweating it out, seeing day-to-day -day the, the manifestations, the responses to therapy, the lack of responses. To, like, they don't understand this disease, and yet they're telling everyone how to treat it. And I find it – we want a seat at the table, expert clinicians. Where's the expert clinician committee? Right. Absolutely agree. And, you know, you see that at the level of doctoring. Yeah. I see that at the level of the pandemic itself. Yes. Right? The fact is, we have a novel phenomenon. It came potentially from an unusual source, yep. right? A knowable <clears throat> source, potentially. What we are supposed to do about it to actually um, take care of it so that it does not become a permanent fellow traveler of humanity, that takes really smart, insightful, courageous people who have been totally liberated to have whatever discussions yeah. need to be had. Instead, we're in this situation where if we open our mouths and say the wrong word, suddenly there are warnings appended to what we've said. It's, it's insane. It's limiting discussion, limiting choices, limiting approaches. And, and killing it, it's, it's hurt. Yes, it's... And I don't know, do we, did we all forget the history books that we read? Like, when has censorship ever been a good thing? Yeah, when, when are the censors <laughs> ever the good guys? Like, I mean, <laughs> when has that ever le led to a societal good? Right. You know, I, well, that, that is, I mean, and I, I've, I really hope that uh, whatever thing it is inside of YouTube and Twitter and Facebook yeah. and LinkedIn that has its meetings, I hope they look at this and they sit down and somebody in the room is courageous enough to look at everybody else and say, are we the bad guys in the story? And yeah. if so, how did that and happen? Brett, like, <clears throat> I get the intention, right? So you want to protect people because medical mis misinformation might harm them. But what I find, I have, I have two problems with that, which is who's the who's going to, you know, if you're going to limit science, I mean, science, that's the antithetical to science. Science is about exploration, hypotheses. Yep. And science has never discovered at the NIH building, right? right? It's actually the people on the ground doing experiments, making deductions. We should flow the information to them, not they not flow the information to us. So, so that is that. And then the placing of medical misinformation on a par with like violent hate speech, white supremacy, like, I'm sorry, but medical, you know, medical misinformation, it's not as harmful as you would think. I mean, you know, people are afraid that you're gonna espouse some medicine that's not gonna work and they're gonna hurt someone. I think people do not need to be protected to that extent. I mean, people have judgment. They do lots of things in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like censorship's not the answer to that. Well, I would say um, the problem is that 
you get the harm to people on both sides, right? right? If you try to constrain things to only the information that we're really, really, really certain yeah. of, you're going <clears> to <throat> kill a lot of people because you're not going to benefit from the exploration. And if I can actually just draw an analogy between what you do, you know, with your individual patients and the situation that civilization is caught in with COVID more broadly in the ICU, and I don't know, I've never been an ICU doc, but in the ICU, you are dealing with people who are really sick. Oh, yeah. Their lives are on the line. They're the sickest of the sick, yeah. Right. Now, if I'm in that bed, right, and you're my doctor, my sense is I do not want you so terrified that you may kill me trying to help me that you are paralyzed. I want you to take your best shot at getting me through it. And I am accepting that you may kill me because the chances are you are more likely to help me. So when we are talking about the question of what these therapies are, we are in the middle of a brand new disease. Yeah. We are discovering <clears throat> if it turned out that you were wrong about ivermectin, then some people would die. But the number of people who have already died because we haven't used this drug is absolutely it's incalculable. So the point is, look, let's be adults about this. People are dying. They are dying. What we would like to figure out as quickly as possible is what is the way to reduce that number. And I also think we overfocus on death. The amount of damage yeah. that people are suffering who get sick and recover is immense too. Those people will lose years of their lives. No question. So you know, the question really is, how do we minimize the net harm of this disease? And the answer is there is no way to do it without some people dying as we figure out, as we get our bearings. There's but no way to do that. I agree. And, you know, you know, Umberto Maduro talks about this a lot is that, you know, he, we're, we are just demoralized at the lack of really emergency thinking, which is a risk-benefit analysis. So right. everything I do at the bedside of a patient is a risk-benefit. Anytime I prescribe a medicine, it's because I believe that the chances of benefit are greater than the harm. And you can do that on any amounts of evidence. You can do it on unassailable mountains of evidence. You could also do it on little evidence. But you're going to make a risk-benefit ratio. And the idea that we're not going to use a really safe drug, which has nothing, every study shows nothing but benefit. Okay. And, and why we're not employing it. Well, this is the impossible question. And I, I will say, when I started to detect the <clears throat> message that you guys were sending out, I was cautious about it, right? I looked at this and I thought, whoa. Fair. You know. Be cautious. There's, yeah. a, there's a drug. It has positive effects. Why am I not seeing it discussed more? And then as I went deeper into the evidence and as you all generated more evidence and put it into the world and as the natural experiments that are in the world revealed themselves and showed the very same pattern, it became clear that this was actually taken in the aggregate. The amount of evidence is incredible, right? This is a very clear signal. It'd be hard to miss it unless that was your purpose, unless you had some confusion or reason not to want to know. And then if you extrapolate from that, uh, you get into some very strange territory about why, in light of this tool that is apparently at our disposal, safe, highly effective, not only highly effective at treating these patients, but treating, but preventing people from coming down with COVID, yeah. you know, what would it mean if we had that at our disposal and didn't use it? 
So let's talk a little bit about the evidence. What is ivermectin? Can you- so ivermectin, right, is it's um, one of the most common medicines in the world. It actually works against parasites, right? So worms, different parasitic diseases that affect humans and animals. So it's a very um, common medicine given to animals. <clears throat> And it also won the Nobel Prize because it essentially transformed the health status of huge portions of the globe. So there was a lot of continents where parasitic diseases were endemic and, I mean, absolutely were decimated the health status of really low and middle income countries. Uh, one of them is a, a disease called onchocerciasis or river blindness. Mm-hmm. It literally causes blindness. And there were some uh, populations in Africa, some societies where I think it's like 50% of the men by the time of age 40 were blind. So you had like villages where like all the people were blind. And here comes ivermectin, known to be this, uh, you know, really effective antidote, and it basically eradicated the disease. And so it's been used now for 40 years, 4 billion doses. Uh, The WHO has uh, administered mass distribution programs to many of those areas. And so um, for that reason, it's one of the the greatest um, feats of a medicine in history, you know, uh, maybe on the part, not not a, maybe not as big as penicillin. That's the you know one of the biggest the discoveries, yep. but literally it's on that shelf, right? And and that's just parasites, right? right? So as I understand the story, it's discovered in the early. So 70s? it first discovered, identified in like 70, 75. Yeah. by Satoshi Omura. Uh, Japanese uh, is he a scientist? Was he a he is. He's a scientist, biologist, yeah. and he discovered it in. It was produced in the soil by bacteria. I think. So he was. Yeah. What he was doing, his expertise was looking at substances made by microorganisms, sort of like penicillin, right? And what their effects were as as a medicine against other organisms, right? Because many organisms make substances to ward off other organisms, and so he would take organisms from the soil and look at the substance they created and then test them as as medicines. That that was his expertise. And what's so fascinating about ivermectin is that he found the microorganism near a golf course outside of Tokyo, and it's it's, it's an organism called Streptomyces. Um, And so it made this substance, which is actually called avermectin. But to this day, that microorganism in Japan is still the only place you can find the, mm. now, now it's obviously produced everywhere, but the source right. is still in the soil in Japan. Like that's the, it's never been found from any other sources. I understand. So it's really, really wild his discovery, and so that's um, cool. That's yeah. cool. So I must say, as an evolutionary biologist, um, this also strikes a chord because I am much more concerned about a totally novel molecule that we have yeah. created in a laboratory. And the reason I'm more concerned about it is that there's every possibility when you create something in the laboratory that our ancestors who will never have encountered anything like it and therefore our bodies may not know what to do with it. But a natural molecule um, is something you can't, you know, obviously if it's endemic to Japan, um, most of our ancestors probably never encountered the exact molecule, but the chances that they have encountered many molecules like it and therefore True. will be able to process it in some reasonable way is very, very high, right? Yeah. Unlike something like, that. Yeah. like Tylenol, for example, which seems very safe, but is actually quite destructive of the liver, toxic, especially yeah. in combination with alcohol. You just don't foresee how dangerous a molecule you've ingested because it's so common. So anyway, okay. So no, ivermectin like is discovered uh, two, two, 
2015, it wins the well, Nobel it won, Prize. Well, yeah, it won the because it, and really that was in recognition not only of the, the discovery, but really the impacts on global health. And the WHO, that's like some of the hey, heyday of the WHO is their early work on some of those diseases. So, um, but but the uh, the story goes on, right? So around 2012. The first studies started coming out of labs in virus models. So they started looking at cell culture models in labs. They showed that ivermectin was like working against Zika and dengue and West Nile and influenza. Like it was showing antiviral properties yeah. in experiments. So here you have this phenomenal antiparasite drug, and now it's showing that it has efficacy against viruses. And so that's where the antiviral story, which is, I think, Again, we can we're going to talk about it in terms of COVID, but I actually think I'm so like, like go back to the hopeful part. I am so interested in the future of this drug against other viruses as well. So before we get to that, we should talk about COVID. But yeah, you know, well, but I I think this fits beautifully. So it's not like this was you know when I heard that ivermectin had some utility, and then I looked into the the evidence for it. My assumption was that people were just throwing random molecules right. to see what stuck. And so that is a more tenuous connection yeah. than actually this does have broad antiviral Ten effect. years of experiments. There just haven't been clinical trials of it, right? right. And, then, and then, you know, the story with COVID is that a group in Australia um, published a study, I think it was late April of 2020, showing that in their cell culture model, it basically eradicated all viral material within 48 hours. And and so it showed this phenomenal efficacy in the Petri dish, in right? Vitro. In the lab, right? Yeah. And so I always say, you know, very few, and you're going to know this too, very few molecules make it from the bench to the bedside, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff that has to happen, right? Sure. You know, the concentrations have to be appropriate. The safety has to, and then it has to work in a human model, right? Because right. we're not Petri dishes, but... Uh, anyway, so you get, you know, very few can make that leap and then hit the the goals of safety and efficacy, mm -hmm. right? And at, a, at an adequate concentration, right, to, to be effective. And so, so great. It worked in the lab. The, now, remember, that was a time where, I mean, literally the world was going insane, right? I mean, people were dying. There was so much uh, that was going on that a couple of countries, Peru in particular, they did the boldest move, and because of it, that was really emergency thinking, emergency action. They actually, in their national health ministry, they got together. They saw what was happening on the ground in Peru, and based on a basic science lab experiment, they recommended ivermectin to the population. Which is not crazy, because not as crazy. you point out, there's a lot that can go wrong between the bench and the bedside. But in this case, it wasn't like some molecule works at the bench. What the hell is going to happen when you, you give to people? You knew it was safe. You knew it was safe because so many people had taken it. You knew it was safe. It may not work in the human as it did in the But you knew that you weren't going to hurt anyone. Right. Right? So, right. so why not try it? And then you would imagine right. you, the evidence would accumulate. If it works in people and it's safe enough to try it and you've got an emergency situation where you don't have yeah. another effective therapy, then okay, you give it to people, you know, it's a Hail Mary, but lo and behold, the evidence accumulates. So what happened? It was very controversial. 
<laughs> okay. So, so first of all, a couple of things happened. So the way I understand in the beginning is that it was part of the national guideline, but it was really attacked. So a lot of scientists thought that was irresponsible, unproven. You know, the cry of these uh, is this insufficient evidence that I always hear. And that actually probably applied back then. There was really not sufficient evidence, but you could say on a risk-benefit uh, risk ratio, it's reasonable. But anyway, it was very controversial. And so it wasn't widely adopted. I think a lot of people didn't agree with that. And fairly soon after that, after a lot of discussion, they removed it from the national guidelines. However, many states did adopt it and began to distribute ivermectin in, in Peru. And what you saw in those states, every time they began a campaign, they began it at different times across the summer, spring and summer. Every time it was followed by precipitous declines in case counts and deaths. And really the excess deaths were plummeting in all of these regions in Peru. But what's interesting, so that what I think is a landmark paper and probably the one of the most important people in this story, besides Paul Marek, right? So going back to that identification, right, of the, the evidence is, you know, when we talk about pattern recognition, it's really Paul who identified that there was something happening around ivermectin. He did, he noticed this pattern based on just a few studies. He saw the the, the magnitudes and what it was showing. And he said, you know, I, he says, I think this is something real. Because we've been studying all of the trials on everything. So many were failing. So many were like conflicting, unsatisfying. But here comes ivermectin. And the signal around ivermectin was really astonishing. And even the lead researcher for the Unitaid and WHO, he found it remarkable too. He had, uh, there was a team that was looking at repurposed drugs since last June. They were on their seventh molecule. And he had heard about ivermectin, I think it was because of our advocacy. And suddenly that's all they studied. And he saw the same thing. He saw everything breaking in this remarkable reproducible consistency around ivermectin. And it's just an astonishing story in that way. But So remind me, yeah. uh, I think you said, but when was that? So Paul, I think the first studies that Paul said, I think we got something here, was about mid-October. Because Paul put a, his, if you, it would be a cool historical, mid if you look at, yeah, mid-October 2020. 2020. Yeah. The, so, and remember, we did not have ivermectin on our protocols. We actually didn't even have, uh, the FLCC did not have an early treatment protocol. Paul Marek did at his medical school. He had put down some general recommendations of stuff you could do. Uh, you know, sort of a nutritional and vitamin supplementation to to prevent, and some stuff with antiviral properties like uh, melatonin and zinc and um, and and a, a sort of an outpatient regimen. But we didn't have one as part of the FLCCC, and but we were watching it. And Paul had always had ivermectin on his protocol with a question mark because we just didn't have the data to really recommend it. And so, when Paul started to see these trials, and they were really very profound, the benefits. Um, we put it on and we put together a protocol. So my paper, uh, the preprint went up November 13th. Because after Paul started to talk about it, I got intrigued. And so I dove in right behind him. I just started reading and reading and reading and, and looking at all these papers. And I started to put together a review paper. And the first draft was November 13th, which is like three years ago. <laughs> Feels like three years ago. Yeah, it seems like um, But what I want to also mention is another character in the story besides Paul is a man named Juan Chimie. And he's actually a business data analyst, and he's from South America. And he, starting back in June, he'd heard from friends in Colombia that they were using ivermectin. They said, this stuff works. And so he'd heard, like, on, just on the ground that, like, 
people who were taking ivermectin just did really well and they weren't getting sick and it seemed to be effective. And he started looking at all publicly available databases in different regions and he started to notice a pattern. And he has been posting and publishing these graphs for a year now. And they all show reproducible benefits on a, at a population-based level whenever ivermectin is adopted into guidelines or used in a city or region. And so we're, we have masses of evidence showing that it's working epidemiologically on the, that kind of data. And his paper, <clears throat> which he wrote with a couple other experts, it's now in peer review, but I think it's a historic landmark paper. And what they did is they showed that uh, that uh, the relationship of the states in Peru, the distribution of ivermectin, and what happened to the case counts and deaths. And they very carefully ruled out all the other confounders, like lockdowns and mobility and mask wearing and everything. They show you there's nothing else to explain those precipitous drops but ivermectin. I think that paper and, – and so what's interesting is Paul identified it. I fell in behind Paul. I started looking at all the clinical evidence. And then one day I found Juan Chimier's paper on a preprint server. And I literally, I think there was goosebumps going through me because I'm looking at this paper and I already knew that this was probably a gangbuster of a medicine, but I saw the paper showing like that it's actually working on a population-based level in Peru. And like I called Paul and I'm like, Paul, I just sent you this paper. You got to look at it. And, you know, and Paul was, Paul was not a surprise to me because I think Paul, or Paul knows everything. He already knew that ivermectin was capable of this, but I thought it was really important because this was like the there's no better evidence that you know never mind randomized controlled trials like you're seeing like thousands upon thousands of of people like not dying in society so um i know exactly what you're getting at right there's a signal that's so strong and yeah. i've now seen it in the papers um largely you know uh, your your group has directed the world who is paying attention to this which yeah. is a very tiny fraction of the world but has directed us to the evidence and the evidence is unambiguous it's this yep. tremendous signal um it is maddening i must say to hear the responses the finger wagging that comes from officialdom and all of the people who are repeating these claims that you know you know i, I remember the uh, that remarkable I'm going to go ahead and, and end that stream right there. There's another hour and a half of absolutely fabulous video um, for you guys to enjoy that is is coming after that. And so I encourage you to go to, um, you can go to YouTube and find it. It's the Dark Horse Podcast, Brett Weinstein, B-R-E-T-W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, or you go right to his website at brettweinstein.net. Um, just a fabulous interview. It's, it's conversations like that with brilliant, amazing men like that, conversations like I had with Judy that give me hope for this world. Um, th there's some great people in the world. We just kind of, we need to figure out how to switch around who's in power and, and who's not. And let's get some people helping guide this country and guide this planet who, you know, who are like these two gentlemen having this amazing conversation. So thank you so much for spending the last couple of hours with me here. You've been listening to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW with Bernadette Pager. And we're going to be back next week with two more hours. Everybody take care. Have a good one.
Did you know that 70 to 80% of your immune system resides in your gut lining? Ion Gut Health goes beyond probiotics to strengthen this barrier and balance your microbiome the natural way. This soil-derived supplement is scientifically proven to reinforce your first line of defense, keeping harmful foreign particles out of your bloodstream. Maintain a healthy immune system so that it can protect you when you need it most. Support your immune system with Ion Gut Health. Learn more at ionbiome.com. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.